RadioInfluence.com. Why, Crush ya. It's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10 12 60 with your questions, comments, or smart ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Listen, I'm so glad you could join us this week as the Crush War on Sugar rages on with a vengeance. This week, we'll look at the global obesity rates. Where are we at and where are we trending? It's not a pretty picture. We're also going to look at a new innovative junk food ban coming out of Mexico. And new dietary guidelines in the U.S. are taking aim at daily sugar consumption. And then later in the show, I am very happy to announce we're going to talk with Gary Tobbs, investigative science and health journalist, author, and speaker. You might be familiar with Gary from his many published articles or his appearances on network newscasts. He's also been a major contributor in two of my favorite documentaries that look at the sugar and the sugar industry and the impact sugar has had on our health. The documentaries Fat and Sugar Coated are both on the Crush War on Sugar must watch list. If you can find these documentaries somewhere on your video platforms, watch them. You're going to be alarmed. You will laugh. You will cry. But most importantly, you're going to be educated with knowledge that's going to allow you to move forward with purpose. And let me tell you, people, we have got to move forward with some serious urgency. And if you'd like to reach out, please do so. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crush Performance is our email. We answer every message we get, so write to us. Questions, comments, smart remarks. If you need some help with something, your program, your strategies for performance, or if you're having issues uh, that might be covered by the war on sugar. Listen, if we don't have the answers in-house, I can promise you somewhere in our network, we'll get those answers for you. So please shoot us a message on social media. At Jeff Crush is my Twitter handle. Don't tweet a lot. But when I do, it's something that we really want to share. And much the same on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube. Search out Crush Performance there. Okay, the global obesity rates. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got a failing grade. When we go back to 1975 and look at the data that the World Health Organization puts out during that time frame, if we fast forward to today, the world obesity rates have tripled since 1975. Not a great trend. The last major calculation on global obesity and overweight numbers was back in 2016. And at that time, 39% of adults 18 and over were overweight. 39% men, 40% women. 13% of the world's population were obese. These are 2016 numbers and they're alarming. And just to set the stage, overweight is defined as a body mass index between 25 and 29 Obesity is defined as a body mass index of 30 plus. We'll talk about the body mass index in a second, but those are the guidelines that we're using to define uh, those numbers right there. When we look at the trends and the projections based on what's happened over the last decades, it's projected that by 2020, 83% of men will be overweight or obese and 72% of women. And when it comes to our children, we are in dire, dire straits. Big trouble on the horizon unless we start correcting things right now. First things first, the body mass index, I've hated it from day one. 
The body mass index is a measurement that's used by doctors, insurance companies, health regulators, and surveys, and it's just incredibly inaccurate. It's supposed to give us an idea based on a number that compares us to everybody else who's been measured. To get your body mass index, you divide your weight in kilograms by your height in meters, and you take that number and then you divide it by your height again. That gives you your body mass index. The problem is it doesn't account for your actual body composition. So somebody like myself, I am 5'10", 5'9 and a half, all right. In the morning, maybe 5'10", but I'm 225 pounds. I don't have a lot of body fat. Actually, I believe I'm average or below average for body fat for my males my age. But when you look at the body mass index based on my height and my weight, I am in the absolute highest risk category for health. And I'm not even close, I'll just humbly say, to being anywhere in that category. As a matter of fact, I kind of pride myself in being in pretty darn good shape. So what do we do? Well, this is a big, big problem. And it's something that we really need to correct because this number is so inaccurate, it's maddening. So what the researchers have come up with is something called the RFM, the relative fat mass, which is a much, much more accurate number. And I think the BMI has gone the way of the dodo bird, thank goodness. The relative fat mass measurement, though it might have sort of negative connotations, it's going to be an important number because it's more accurate. It actually considers your height and your waist circumference. So basically what you do for males, you take the number 64, you minus 20 times your height divided by your waist circumference, and that gives you your relative fat mass index or measurement. And of course, once the numbers start flowing in and we start getting mass numbers, we're going to get a really good idea of what your number means in terms of overall general health patterns. For women, the number is 76 minus 20 times your height divided by your waist circumference. That gives you the female RFM. Now, the reason the RFM is so much better than the body mass index is it actually considers body composition. We know the health risks associated with belly fat or love handles or a larger waistline. So goodbye to the BMI and thank goodness it's going to take some time. I mean, the BMI has been such an integral part of our healthcare system and not only that, our insurance system and just evaluating the health of our populations. But these new numbers are going to be way more meaningful. They're actually correlated to your body mass and your body composition. And I think that's going to be really, really helpful as we move forward to help people become more healthy. And it has to happen right now. We have got to get moving. These trends that we're seeing on the world stage are scary. And right in our backyard, we're dealing with it. Let's go down to Mexico. An interesting development as they're looking at a ban on junk food. Now, it's not breaking news that Mexico has a population-wide weight issue, all right? But when you have conditions like diabetes, obesity, and hypertension running rampant in your population, these make the coronavirus especially deadly. And this is part of the reason there's such urgency in Mexico. They've had more than 95,000 COVID-related deaths in Mexico. And a headline that came out of one of the newspapers down there read this, a quote from a citizen. Um, if the coronavirus doesn't kill me, hunger will. The headline went on to say Mexico's poor bear the brunt of the pandemic. So while the pandemic is running wild in Mexico, they're also dealing with 
incredible health issues related to obesity. Mexico, as a country, is ranked number one for obesity in the world. And the first state to initiate the ban on junk food is Oaxaca. It is the country's epicenter for childhood obesity. So simply put, the way this ban is structured is anybody under the age of 18 cannot buy junk food unless their parents are present. Imagine that. As a 16, 17, 18-year-old, you can't go down to the local corner store and buy a soda. You can't buy a chocolate bar or a bag of chips. You can't go in and buy your favorite bag of candies for a movie night or whatever it might be. It's a massive shift. There's going to be some pushback here from the public, and there's certainly going to be pushback here from the food industry. But all in all, I don't mind it. I think that at 16, 17, 18, you're kind of okay to go in and buy whatever you want. You're kind of smart enough. And hopefully you've had the guidance that's needed to help make decisions. But, you know, I think that's an age where you might be okay. I think for the younger kids, however, this is a brilliant move, especially the way the food companies target their marketing towards our youth. It's a travesty. And if there should ever be any laws, that's where they should lie. And they're coming. They are truly coming. And this is going to be a big one. The food companies are going to push back. And I think that's where it's going to get really, really interesting. There's also an economic side to this whole thing. Stores and small businesses are already suffering. And we know that at those convenience stores, those candy, soft drink, junk food categories can sometimes drive their entire economy. What a conundrum we're in. This is not just Mexico either. Mexico just happens to be one of the most concerning areas in the world when it comes to public health. And a lot of that has to do, as mentioned by some of their public health authorities, is simply the lack of resources, poor food choices, lack of money, time, and healthy options. They're just not there. And when you're in a country where the economy is already struggling, you add the COVID pandemic, of course, people have to alter what they do. So maybe now is a great time to start this massive turn because we're going to get to the other side of the COVID pandemic here, hopefully sooner than later. And when we do, hopefully we can start recalibrating our youth, recalibrating the entire industry. But for now, boy, oh boy, you're going to see pushback from the public. You're going to see pushback from the small businesses. And you're certainly going to see pushback from the food industry and big food. And boy, boy, what a battle this is going to be. Where do you draw the line? I mean, health and wellness over profits and junk food. This is what the war on sugar is all about. And frankly, good for Mexico. This is going to be something to watch. And I think other countries in the world, just like the, the, the sugar taxes and the fat taxes we've seen all over the world now, um, they caught on. I think this junk food ban is, is really going to be powerful. And to go right alongside the junk food ban for youth, they're also going to implement a giant font label system on all foods down there saying, you know, um, excess sodium, excess trans fats, high in sugar. All these warnings are going to be in big, bold, beautiful letters so the customers know, so the people know what they're getting into. And they're also, speaking of advertising, they're also going to implement a ban on advertising of unhealthy foods to children. We're going to watch how that unrolls because there's not been a country in the world that hasn't talked about exactly that. Banning the advertising that targets our youth. Man, 
That advertising is so powerful. And the way social media is working nowadays, the access to our children is like never before. These guys have full access to your children, to our children through the social media, whether it's through the games, whether it's through their social media platforms, they can target your child directly and don't think they can't because they can and they are. So we're going to watch Mexico here with great, great interest and all the best to them because they have a massive uphill battle as they wage their own version of the war on sugar. And closer to home now, in the U.S., there are new dietary guideline recommendations that take aim at the daily sugar consumption for children and adults. It's the 2020 Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee. The panel consisted of doctors, nutritionists, and other health experts, and they were challenged to answer a bunch of questions that related to the U.S. diet and the health of the population. Are there things that need to be changed and need to be considered that would just help people be healthier? That was the sort of overall guys. And one of their focal points was the amount of sugar in the average daily diet. And the final recommendation was to reduce the amount of added sugar from 10% of daily calories to 6%. It's a big move. It's going to raise awareness. There's no doubt about it. A lot of people thought that 10% was too high to begin with. And the original recommendation years ago was to have it lower than 10% of daily calories. But the pushback from the food industry and the lobbyists caused them to reevaluate and compromise. But when it comes to public health and something that we know is bad, the amount of sugar we're consuming, I don't think we compromise. I don't think there's room for compromise. I understand the financial side. I really honestly do. But let's adjust, man. Let's make some adjustments. The food companies have got to adjust. Focus on maybe healthier food. Do something good. What do you think the food industry is going to do when they hear the second major recommendation from the advisory committee? Their second major recommendation is to ban all sugar-sweetened beverages for children up to two years of age. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And there's no compromise here. The children, the parents, and the food companies. A ban on all sugar-sweetened beverages up to two years of age. Now, the food companies are going to have to course correct. And it's going to turn out fine. And at the end of the day, I've got a funny suspicion everybody's going to be better off for it. We know the issues. We know how to fix the issues. And this isn't something that we compromise on. One half of American adults suffer from one or more preventable chronic diseases. How about those numbers? Two-thirds of adults are classified as overweight or obese. Listen, time is critical here. And we know the numbers in our children are growing at an unbelievably scary rate. 17 teaspoons of added sugar per day is the average for adults. And those numbers are even higher for our youth and for people who are less physically active. Time is critical here, ladies and gentlemen. We have got to act. Our war in sugar has got to rage on like never before. And in this pandemic time, we've got to make some serious choices. And of course, it's very difficult to make a good choice if you don't really know the landscape you're playing in. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce our next guest, Coming up after the break, Gary Tobbs, investigative science and health journalist, author and speaker. Gary is a soothsayer, a finder of facts. He's in search of the truth, 
and he's been a historian, so to speak, when it comes to the sugar industry and the path that's brought us to the brink when it comes to public health. So coming up after the break, get set for a powerful conversation as the crush war on sugar rages on. This is Crush Performance. If you have questions, comments, or smart remarks, write to us at crushperformance.com. And welcome back to the Crush War on Sugar, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell. Thanks for sticking around over the break. Listen, if you want to reach out to us, crushperformance.com is the website. Subscribe to the podcast, get our newsletter, and all the information when it comes to human performance. And, of course, today, the Crush War on Sugar. We're going to get right into it. I'm so excited about this next guest. You may be familiar with him through all of his publications or his appearances on network newscasts or through his incredible contributions to some of the powerful documentaries that are out there. Two of our favorites, Fat and Sugar Coated, our crush War on Sugar must-watch documentaries. If you can find them, please do. The information is incredible, and it's one of the reasons I'm so excited to introduce Mr. Gary Tobbs, investigative science and health journalist author and speaker. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited to have you here on the Crush War on Sugar. Uh, Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, I followed your work for quite some time. And of course, the documentaries like Fat and Sugar Coated, uh, I've seen you, you know, talking about this very, very important issue um, and and many different mediums. And I've read a number of your articles. Maybe to start off, Gary, I'm actually quite interested in how you got involved in this line of investigative journalism and and, and why the focus on sugar and, and health. Okay, well, my background initially was hard science. When I went into journalism in the mid-'80s, I wrote a couple of books about scientists who uh, got the wrong answers in their work, who discovered non-existent phenomena, and I became obsessed with this question of how hard it is to do science right. Um, And that's a big issue nowadays with uh, COVID, clearly, because you read all the time in the papers, people arguing about what the science does or does not say. And I've been studying this now for 35 years. Um, in the early 90s, some of my friends in the physics community suggested that if I was interested in bad science and scientists getting the wrong answer, I should look at the stuff in public health, which they thought was terrible. And I was uh, working as a contributor to the journal Science, and they did a series of investigative articles on some of the um, major findings in the area of sort of diet and health and what we were being taught that was uh, the, the basic fundamentals of a healthy diet. And it turned out that the science was indeed pretty uh, poorly done and the interpretation, the, the uh, conclusions are over-interpreted and, you know, one thing led to another. I, I had an investigative piece looking at the question of whether high salt diets cause hypertension, high blood pressure, and the data were surprisingly uh, bad there. And then high, whether or not we should all be eating the low-fat diet that we were all on in the 90s, and that too was supported by pretty scanty evidence. And one thing led to another. Um once you started looking at the question of obesity and diabetes, there was an a enormous amount of evidence that had been ignored over the years, suggesting that the problem wasn't saturated fat or too many calories, but that it was the sugar content of our diet. So, uh, you know, 20, 30 years of research led me more and more to focus on sugar. 
Well, and that makes great sense. And, you know, if we look at uh, your works, going back to some of your early articles and to where we're at now, your latest book, of course, called The Case Against Sugar. Uh, you're like an obesity, diabetes, diet and sugar historian and probably the go to person when we look at these types of topics. What a fascinating journey you've been on. And um, I, I've I've uh, followed along quite closely and seen some of the turbulent times you've been through. You know, when we take a look at the perspective and where we've come from, say, you know, back in the late 1800s or the 1800s to now and how our uh, health has changed along with our diets. I just I just still very perplexed on how we how we're not talking about this more, Gary. This has to be something you're very concerned about as well. Well, we are getting to the point where the public health authorities are focusing on sugar. It took a long time to get here. Um depending on how you want to date it, uh, maybe we're 50 or 100 years later than we should have been. Um, But there was so much focus. There were a few fundamental sort of belief systems in the nutrition world that kept people from focusing on sugar. So one is we get fat because we eat too many calories or we don't exercise enough. And in that world, a calorie is a calorie. So there's nothing really wrong with sugar other than that it tastes too good and we eat too much. In my book, The Case Against Sugar, I have a chapter on this concept that I call the gift that keeps on giving. Because if it's true that a calorie is a calorie, their bodies respond to all what are called macronutrients differently. So they respond to the calories in broccoli no differently than they do the calories in a meatloaf or the calories in a Coca-Cola. And there's nothing really wrong you could say about bad you could say about sugar or other sugary beverages other than we like them too much and we consume too many of them. Um, And then we were focused on the saturated fat in the diet. So this was one of these big investigations I did in the 90s. Um, There was so much our public health authorities sort of put all their weight into telling us we should avoid saturated fat and eat low-fat diets for heart disease. And the sugar hypothesis was seen as a competitor to this. And indeed, the researchers arguing that sugar was bad, who tended to be British, were arguing that fat was benign. And so if they were right, then the fat story was wrong. And uh, personalities and politics got into that story. And the end result is it wasn't until the last decade or so that researchers finally started saying, why don't we look at the obvious elephant in the living room, which is all the sugary beverages we're drinking and all the sweets we're eating and all these foods that people always considered inherently bad for us and had somehow been rendered benign by our in public health authorities. It's an interesting story for sure. We're talking with Gary Tobbs, investigative journalist focusing on science and health. And he's also the author of his latest book, which is a crush must read for anybody concerned or interested in the health and wellness of their families. Uh, the case against sugar is uh, one of those crush must read books for sure. You know, I, 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 I go back and I watch the documentary fat or sugar coated and it kind of takes us through that timeline, Gary. And it is fascinating to me to, to see how early on the research was pointing towards sugar as something really not good for us. You know, we go back to, and you mentioned him quite often, you know, John Yudkin and then the battle against Ansel Keys. And you mentioned politics getting involved there. 
which is mind boggling to me. Even to this day, I know it's happened, but I still uh, get incredibly frustrated when, when I think about that time and that story and how it really, really sort of sealed the fate well, maybe I'm being dramatic there, but but maybe I'll go with it. Sealed the fate of so many people in their health. Uh, yeah, and it, it kind of did. So this the the link between sugar and illness. How I mean, you can find people in the nine, mid 19th century saying all our ailments come from consuming <laughs> sugar. Uh, the by the 19, mid 1920s, uh, when it was clear that there was a diabetes epidemic that had emerged so between the Civil War, post-Civil War years and the 1920s, that 50-year period, diabetes uh, prevalence rates and diabetes mortality in the U.S. went up in some cities, you know, a factor of 10, 15 fold. And in the mid, by the mid-1920s, you can find very uh, authoritative voices saying, look, this completely coincides with the increase in sugar consumption and the the founding of the sugary beverage industry, you know, like Coca-Cola and Pepsi did their very best beginning in the 1880s to make sure that everyone in the United States and eventually everyone in the world could get a hold of their products effortlessly and drink the pause that reflects, uh, the pause that refreshes all day long. And this coincides, not cause and effect, but it coincides with this increase in, in, diabetes, this explosion of diabetes, and obesity, which follows. And you see this in populations all over the world, too. So whenever a population transitions from eating whatever its uh, native traditional diet is to eating a Western diet, which means, in effect, they're now consuming sugary beverages, sugar, and white flour, you see these explosions in obesity and diabetes that follow. And researchers watching these epidemics happen said, well, it's probably the sugar and the white flour. So that's what they're now eating. And the sugar industry clearly didn't like the message. The food industry in the U.S. for the most part is packaging processed carbohydrates, you know, the cereal, bread, sugary beverage industry, so they didn't like it. The sugar industry, it's funny, we could accept the message that fat was bad because anybody who was selling a product with dietary fat in it could then sell the same product in a low-fat version or a low-saturated fat version. Even the uh, dairy and uh, you know meat industry started selling, well, the you know, low-fat and dairy uh you remove the fat from, say, yogurt, which is the iconic example, and you replace it with sugar so it's still palatable or high fructose corn syrup, and you have something you can sell now as a heart-healthy diet food, even though it's now loaded with sugar. Um, so the industry never really fought back against this anti-fat movement, but they fought back against the anti-sugar movement because for the sugar industry, that's all you're selling is sugar then you better be able to keep selling it. The sugar industry, uh, as I documented in my book, with the great help of a researcher named Kristen Kearns, um, you know, had a very active public relations program in the 1960s and 1970s to keep the nutrition community focused on fat and to argue against or try to discredit anyone who said sugar was a problem. And they succeeded. 
They sure did. We're talking with Gary Tobbs, investigative journalist and author. You could check out Gary's great work at GaryTobbs.com. Well, you met, mentioned Kristen there, Kristen uh, Cousins. Uh, you and her have collaborated on a couple of great, great projects. And of course, um, her background and her involvement in this I guess plight is a very, very interesting one. It's uh, uh, really interesting how you guys came together. Um, Gary, let me ask you this. If we were to go back to, you know, some of the turning points in time, you know, we talk about Yudkin and Ansel Keys, but you know, uh, in your book, you have a chapter drug or food. The book is fantastic, by the way, it's just a great read. And again, one, one of our, our must reads for sure. But it, Gary, right now, based on where we're at in the research and the understanding and the, the level of responsibility the government's now taking here, if we were to go back, let's say to 1976, that area somewhere in there where, where um, sugar obtained grass status, w- would you call that a turning point right now? And, and if we were to recreate that in today's landscape, would we get that same result, do you think? That's hard to say. Um, so, by grass, uh, grass is a a deterrent. It means generally recognized as safe. Right. And the idea was that uh, beginning, I think it was the late 1950s, the uh, FDA was empowered to take all these products that were being used as food additives. So, everything from artificial sweeteners to preservatives to any all those chemical names you see in the ingredient list. And in effect, make sure they were safe for human consumption. And some things would be uh, given grass status in the retrospect. So they'd say, well, everyone considers this safe, so it's fine. And other things had to um, uh, you know, go through a sort of committee analysis to see if they should still be considered generally recognized as safe. And if not, what would have to be done to get them that status? And so in the mid-1970s, as you pointed out, Sugar had to get grass status, and the committee that looked at it, when you read their deliberations carefully, which they did, they basically said that sugar was kind of too big to fail. So even though there were people arguing that sugar was inherently toxic, which included the British researcher John Yudkin, the most uh, respected nutritionist in Europe, um, there were a lot of people arguing that it was harmless, including some very well-respected, powerful uh, nutritionists in the United States, uh, Fred Stair and Harvard, who founded the Harvard Nutrition Department and got a lot of money from the sugar industry. Um, you know, they, they, what they basically said is if they were to claim that sugar was harmless or harmful, not generally recognized safe, it would have repercussions so severe throughout the entire uh, food industry and public health industry that they couldn't deal with it. So they were going to just assume it was safe because a lot of people thought it was. And in truth, the nutrition community, as I said, was focusing on fat, not sugar. Um, if they had made the proper assessment or had they been empowered, for instance, to say, look, we don't really know. We have reason to worry about sugar. Clearly, there are a lot of people who are worried about sugar. The research doesn't exist to say for sure. So before we can say it's generally recognized as safe, why don't we make sure these particular experiments get done, these studies get done so we know what we're talking about. Um, And they weren't empowered to do that. They were just empowered to say yeah, even the terminology generally recognized as safe is interesting. It didn't have to be unanimously recognized as safe. It only had to be 
generally recognized. Uh, and so they said, uh, right. Yeah. And that was it. In, in, in 1986, they returned to that question. They again decided it was generally recognized as safe. And the interesting thing was those FDA bureaucrats, one of them went, later went to work for the corn refiners who were producing high fructose corn syrup. Uh, those administrators concluded that it was safe at the levels that were being consumed in the 1980s, but then they underestimated the levels being consumed by about a factor of two. Um, the whole thing was a mess. I mean, and the, the consequences are tragic. Well, and they certainly are. And, and there seems to be little to no accountability to this day. Maybe it's just too convoluted and twisted, Gary. Maybe it's just too big, but but something has to get done. I mean, when we look at the instance, as you say, in terms of obesity and the the increase in obesity and right alongside it, diabetes, and you look at the increase in the consumption of sugar, you know, if we look at the average consumption for the average adult male, if we go back to like maybe the early 1800s, it's up significantly. And I, I mean, it, the numbers are, are staggering. There's no question about it. There's a, there's a strong correlation there, but does it remain unproven? How can we not be sitting here going, okay, look, right. We have the heart association and, you know, all these uh, health organizations saying, okay, for men, nine teaspoons of sugar per day for women and children, six teaspoons of sugar per day. Um, which might seem reasonable. Um, but when we look at what's happening in our daily diets, oh boy, oh boy, are we off the mark something fierce? <laughs> yeah, it's the question is what do you consider uh, sufficient evidence right. to say this is this is a toxin, it's a poison, not short term, but long term, as as some people uh like Rob Lustig uh pediatric endocrinologist at UC San Francisco has done a lot of the work in getting people to pay attention to sugar, um, say about it. But the kind of evidence we're talking about is used to condemn a lot of foods in our diet. For instance, it's used to, to suggest we should all stay away from animal products, from, from you know, meat and processed meat instead of mostly plants, which I think that science is wrong and also does a lot of harm. So if you really want to establish uh, hard evidence as opposed to circumstantial evidence that a food is bad for you, you have to do an experiment. You have to do what's called a randomized controlled trial where you, you know, assign some people at random to eat the food and other people not to eat it. Or some people eat a lot of it and other people eat less of it. And so in this case, if you really wanted to know if sugar was causing obesity and diabetes and heart disease and hypertension and dementia and everything else that I could argue with causing, you would have to take maybe, I don't know, 10,000 people and randomize 5,000 to eat a lot of sugar and the other 5,000 to not eat a lot of sugar. And then you have to try and keep their calories the same because otherwise you could blame it on how much they eat instead of what they're It gets extremely tricky and it gets extremely expensive very quickly. So instead, what we do is we rely on this sort of lesser evidence, associations between sugar consumption and disease. But those same associations, like I said, also you can find them between, uh, you know, meat consumption and disease. You can find them between salt consumption and disease. A lot of things that I think are wrong and are probably wrong 
another example, you could also probably find them the, 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 the cheaper the car you drive, the more chronic disease you have. That's an association. <laughs> I never looked to see if it's true, but I, I can guarantee, almost guarantee that people who drive Chevy, 10-year-old Chevy pickup trucks have more chronic disease than people who drive, right. you know, two-year-old Volvos. But that doesn't mean that the 10-year-old pickup truck caused the disease. It just means that there's a whole range of lifestyle factors that go with socioeconomics. It is, it is not that, yeah. And you're probably not going to get board it, approval for, the, for those trials either, are you? Yeah. Yeah, not only that, the other joke is, and I think I said this in my book, so the ideal study would be this long-term study where you compare people who consume sugar to people who don't, and it would be expensive, 10 20 $30 million. Yeah. And the government would never fund it. The reason they never fund it is because they end up saying, well, of course the people who consume less sugar are going to be healthier. Right? Right. Does anyone really doubt that if you randomize people to drink four Coca-Colas a day versus four milks or waters of people drinking the milk or the water would be healthier. Nope. Nope. You're right. Isn't that a, isn't that an interesting conundrum right there? Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of, we're, we're kind of trapped. Yeah. It's a trap. That's a, that, it's like a sugar yeah. trap almost Gary. Yeah. Very, very frustrating. We're talking with Gary Tobbs, investigative journalist who focuses on science and health. His writings have appeared in the New York times, the Atlantic Esquire. And he has a numerous awards, um, including the best of the American science writing award. And um, he's received three science and society journalism awards from the uh, national association of science writers. Um, Gary, y- you mentioned earlier um, high fructose corn syrup. And, and I, I got to go back to this cause this is also um, uh, referenced in your book as well. Um, but when we go back to uh, good calories, bad calories, um, we now have a, a lot of work being done on the glycemic response. Our understanding of the insulin response is coming along greatly. Um, but when we look at artificial sweeteners, when we talk a calorie is not a calorie and we start talking about now the introduction of artificial sweeteners, these empty calorie sweeteners, and then the use of high fructose corn syrup. And then we look at the labeling issues with, with our food uh, um, um, chain and how sugar is hidden sometimes in these products. The consumer is at a real disadvantage here. Uh, yeah, it's hard to know not only what to believe, but who to believe. I mean, look at it, you know, in this case, you've got a journalist uh, that criticizing 50 to 100 years of nutrition and chronic disease science. And uh, so why should anyone decide to believe me instead of, uh, say, a representative from the American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association? Um, certainly the sugar issue got very confused when uh, I put this corn syrup was introduced in the late 1970s, which actually coincides with the, the the obesity epidemic becoming very noticeable, manifesting itself in the United States. And that led a lot of uh, authorities to suggest that high fructose corn syrup was the cause of the obesity epidemic. That was one of the uh, hypotheses I was entertaining when I first started doing my research on this. Um, for the most part, though, high fructose corn syrup is a the sugar, and she doesn't like this language, but it's another variation. It's, it's a slight variation on the 
sucrose, the white powdered stuff that you, you know, put in your coffee or sprinkle on your cereal. Um, it's, so it's hard to blame one versus the other. The question of whether, and the, the argument I make in my book and that people like Rob Lustig make is that it's not about whether one is better than the other. It's just about how bad they both are, <laughs> right. sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Um, the artificial sweeteners are a different issue. Uh, a lot of people who can't give up, can't rid them, get rid of their sweet tooth, go from sugary beverages to artificially sweetened beverages and sugar sweetened, um, high fructose corn syrup sweetened desserts and pastries to artificially sweetened ones. I have a drawer full of um, like ketogenic candy bars, keto-friendly candy bars that are sweetened with artificial sweeteners, are they really better than sugar? And the way I think about it, I don't think the science exists to tell us whether they're harmful. But you always have to ask, compared to what? Right. Everything in the nutrition world, there's not a single question you could ask that, well, maybe there is, but I can't think of one at the moment, that isn't a compared to what question. So if you ask artificial sweeteners more benign than sugar and high fructose corn syrup, I would say absolutely. So if you have to choose between one or the other, I think the data would clearly indicate that artificial sweeteners are, are the healthy choice. Is it better to lose your sweet tooth entirely? So if the question between drinking a Diet Coke or a water or even a artificially sweetened fruit juice versus water, I think it's always better to just go with, you know, what we've been consuming for millions of years as a species, which is the water. So, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, I think artificial sweeteners can be a good, um, like a parachute that people can use to help them get down from their sugar habit. But eventually they're better off if they, they can go to avoiding sweets entirely or all sweets other than, you know, some fruit. Right. We're talking with Gary Dobbs, investigative journalist on this episode of the Crush War on Sugar. Gary, I'll give you a little um, background on how the how our war on sugar, we're calling it the war on sugar started. Um, my mother had early onset Alzheimer's. And when we started digging down to it with the Alzheimer's researchers, um, my background is sport performance and exercise physiology. So, you know, we kind of were floating around the, the edges of biochemistry and human biochemistry in our industry. But when my mom got early on said, you know, I wanted some answers as to why and how this happens. And one of the doctors who I spoke to um, at the brain care center um, started sending me a lot of information on the influence of sugar and long term exposure to high glycemic diets. And, and my mom had a had a sugar uh, sweet tooth. And, and it was kind of funny, you know, when I when I kind of look back, because, you know, it was a few years after my mom started slipping away. My, my dad was sitting to me, he said, son, do, do you think that your mother's condition might have anything to do with her sweet tooth? And I'm going, boy, dad, man, it, I, I can't say, but, you know, that is very, very likely. And, and so I started digging down and talking to some really, really interesting people and smart people and, you know, just started looking at some of the, the headlines out there and the research. And, you know, um, some of them are, are really, really connecting dots or at least appearing to connect dots, you know, like uh, some of the headlines that we've been focusing on here. 
like um, one that came from the University of Texas, 49% greater lung cancer risk with high glycemic diet. And this one comes from uh, the American Alzheimer's Association, I believe. Um, it says uh, a high sugar diet raises your risk of Alzheimer's. And so we've got all these ideas floating around. And just as this is happening, I'm out working with some pro football guys and I'm driving home and this is in a January and I stop up at the little corner store. My wife phoned and asked me to pick up some, some things from the store. So I stop in there and I get up to the counter and there's these two little duffers sitting in front of me. And for everybody who listens to the show regularly, they've heard this story at nauseum, but, but this was sort of for me, the turning point where we really started digging down deep. And one of the reasons I'm so glad to have you on today, um, uh, they're two little guys. They're about nine, 10 years of age. And they've got their, you know, big parkas on it's freezing out and they've got their, um, um, hockey pads on and their socks. They're, they're heading off to hockey practice. It looks like, and I'm standing behind them just texting my wife saying, Hey, I'll be on my way. And they turn around and they're about nine, 10 years old and kind of a little, little pudgy boys. And the one boy is holding a one liter Gatorade and a, and a power bar. And the other boy is holding a, a giant can of energy drink, one of the big giant cans of energy drink and, and a bag of <laughs> chips or something like that. And I made some kind of sound, I think. And I just sort of looked at the boys and I said, boys, do your parents know what you're buying here? And they're kind of looking back at me like stranger danger, stranger danger. And the cashier's looking at me like, dude, what's your problem? But I just, I was flabbergasted. I just, that was a turning point for me. I'm going, you know, with the greatest of intentions, they're buying this stuff, but little do they know the harm it might be causing. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to say about that, but that was sort of the start of our, our hardcore dive into better understanding the impact of sugar on our health. And, and one of the reasons today's conversation is so important. Yeah. And I mean, I completely agree with you. I have um, two sons who are all too aware of how I think about sugar and it's still a constant battle with them to minimize their intake. And even with my wife, to some extent too, who thinks that, Children should get to enjoy their childhood, which, you know, in the modern world means sugar consumption. Um, I don't know what she's thinking, but um, it's, 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 it's definitely a problem. And we talked about, you know, when we talked about the, um, the effect of, uh, so one of the strongest predictors of good health is high socioeconomic status. The uh, wealthier people are, the healthier they are, and the, 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 the poorer, the less healthy. And that goes along with sort of both health consciousness, the, the ability to uh, not just understand the, you know, health literacy, knowing what a healthy diet is or how to eat, but also the, being able to afford a healthy diet. The cheapest calories are sugar. I mean, that, um, that, that power and those Gatorades are, are, you know, among the least expensive things you can buy in, the, in you know, at 7-Eleven. Um, it's just what, and it's, it's what we give our kids. I mean, even when my kids were young, one of them used to go to soccer because at soccer, they would have snacks afterwards and the other parents would invariably bring like a Gatorade. And I would think, but they're not sweating. They're six years old. They don't even run. Right. And still, and I, they would end up Gatorade, up on Gatorade and fruit juice. Yeah. That's why my kids went. So they right. could drink the Gatorade and the fruit juice. Yeah, no, no, it's the um, same. And, and if we look at what happens even at schools, you know, every holiday, there's cakes, cupcakes, treats. There, there's no escape from it. It's almost like you said earlier, we're, we're trapped. It's a constant, constant stream of, of high sugar consumption. And, you know, with... With no malintent, of course, but but we're we're digging ourselves a hole here. And when we look at the when we look at the 
um, the trends that we're seeing in obesity and obesity related illnesses, when we look at diabetes, Gary and Alzheimer's and the stress they're putting uh, on our on our on our healthcare system. Do you think we should be doing more to solidify and, and get those concrete answers? I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier that it's still a convoluted sort of um, uh, opinionated uh, situation out there. Um, it is, and yes, obviously, I think I'm, we should be doing more. I mean, it's, um, I'm proud that all my books end up being pleased for more research. Uh, my Nutrition Science Initiative, which I co-founded, which you mentioned, is uh, basically an organization that uh, we had hoped would uh, be able to fund research on these subjects for years, although we run into some serious speed bumps there. Um, the uh, and Weirdly enough, um, the government does not seem to care that much. Um, they should care about obesity and diabetes because they're huge epidemics. They're going to bankrupt the healthcare system, what's left of it after COVID. Um, the, uh, but the, the, remember, the conventional wisdom is that this is all caused by eating too much and uh, under-exercising. Um, all, it's all based on this idea that, that the calorie is a calorie and sort of personal responsibility. So, um, and we're supposed to know what a healthy diet is. They, they don't really believe that, that there's any more research to be done there. We know enough about what sugar does that we could tell people not to eat it to excess or drink it to excess. Um, a lot of the dietary advices, you know, basically don't consume too much sugar. And, and uh, in theory, you know, when you're consuming too much because then you're overweight or, you know, becoming obese, at which point you're supposed to consume less. This is what they think is about all we need to know. Um, there's a huge contingent of some of uh, nutritionists and uh, epidemiologists or people who study chronic disease risk who will just say, look, we know what a healthy diet is. We know enough. If we tell people to eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, uh, you know, uh, legumes and uh, lean uh, meat and fish in moderation and to not consume too much sugar or to minimize sugar consumption. That's, that's it. That's, we know that's the secret. That's, we don't have to spend any more research dollars here. Um, you know, I think they're wrong. And uh, a lot of people out there like you think they're wrong, but we're still a minority. Um, Isn't it incredible? And it is, but again, it's just when the, you know, in the course of doing my research and then, and, and diving so deeply into the history of all this, you see how our belief systems just created this situation where, you know, what we, we, <laughs> we're trapped. Yeah. Um, well, I tell you, the big food it, companies are powerful, Gary, and you know, your conversation here and what you're talking about, uh, again, before we let you go here, I have to get to this because you've just sort of uh, brought it to the front forefront of my mind here. But but what you're talking about here in terms of, you know, the public perception and and even the way uh, that's been tweaked by the marketing ploys and, and big food. Man, this sounds a lot like that tobacco story that we hear so much about. And in your book, you've got a great chapter um, that's titled The Marriage of Tobacco and Sugar. And 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 and, and I think you know, based on everything I've heard you talk about, it sounds like a pretty similar scenario that we're in right now. Well, this is, I was going to say, because the, 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 so the marriage of tobacco and, and 
and sugar was in just an interesting story. I think um, turns out that 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 people didn't like smoking that much until the Great Revolution of the late. 19th century and the tobacco industry was figuring out how to basically uh, 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 cure tobacco such that you could increase the sugar content of the leaves by about a factor of 10. So they went from about 2 or 3% to 20% sugar. And then when that allowed the the smoke to be uh, made, the the smoking uh, sensation much smoother so that with cigarettes you can actually draw the smoke into your lungs, which then brought both the nicotine into your lungs, which enhanced the addictive nature of the cigarettes, but also brought the carcinogens into your lungs and you see a sort of uh, cancer, lung cancer epidemic takes off just about the same time, uh, coincident with the uh, cigarette industry and the yes. first what are called American blended cigarettes. But here's the good news, and this is what I didn't. I just, you know, eventually the, by 1964, we did, you know, the public health uh, authorities did focus on cigarettes as the cause of lung cancer and smoking in America started to come down, and it has come down significantly since then, although it will never go away. I don't think anyone who smokes does so unaware of the harm that they're doing to themselves or likely doing right. to themselves. Yeah. Um, sugar consumption is coming down. So pretty much coincident with the awareness of the obesity epidemic, right? At the 1998 or so, sugar consumption peaked. And people like Michael Pollan started going after high fructose corn syrup, which was in everything, and particularly in sodas. And then I came along going after sugar, and a lot of other people have gone. So, you know, our voices are being heard, have been heard, and sugar consumption has become been going down steadily, and this is um, worldwide. I, I, You know, is it enough to reverse the obesity epidemic? I personally doubt it, but I do think that we're seeing sort of um, already, I mean, even Alzheimer's rates have been coming down, which... It stuns me, and but is delightful to know. So I think you know the world is getting healthier, and I think the the message is getting out there with or without the public health uh, authorities helping. Well, and a lot of that has to do, as you mentioned, with uh, voices such as yours, Gary. Listen, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, uh, and that is a great trend to hear, you know, as we sort of wrap up this this conversation. Um, I want to thank you for your time today, all your work that you do. Again, for everybody who wants to check out Gary's work, go to GaryTobbs.com. Uh, you can dive into all of his great reading there and research. And uh, Gary, so, you know, uh, coming up, we know you have a new book in the works that's uh, due out in, in December. We'll look forward to that. And, and with that coming to an end, what else is in store for Gary Tobbs here as we move forward? Well, I'm, I'm also working on a book on diabetes, specifically on diabetes. So that's the immediate future. And uh, yeah, hoping the world gets sane. and uh, healthy by next year so we can all get back to our lives. (laughs) Yes. Well, we're, we're, you're preaching to the choir there. Um, Mr. Tobbs, there's no question about it. Well, we'll look forward to that book on diabetes. I'm sure looking forward to talking to you about that, Gary, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Okay. Crushers. How about that? Mr. Gary Tobbs. What a fantastic interview. What a, what, what an interesting conversation. It's so great to get some, context 
and get these inside stories that we might never otherwise hear. Again, if you get a chance to check out his website, GaryTobbs.com, and the Crush War on Sugar must-see documentaries are titled Fat and Sugar-Coated, and Gary was a major, major contributor in both of those. They're fascinating. And also give us a lot of context as to how we've gotten to where we are today. It's not as simple as everybody just consuming more sugar, though that's the end result. No, no, it's a twisted tale of government, big food companies, scientists, the real scientists, the truth. And then, of course, the advertising and the access that they have to our children now through social media. We have to be aware of all of this stuff if we're really going to curb the trends when it comes to obesity and overweight. And again, not everybody needs to be thin and lean. That's not the message here. The message is when you consume too much sugar. It is one of the major contributors to obesity and every single health issue that's related to it, from diabetes to hypertension to Alzheimer's and dementia, directly linked now to the amount of sugar we consume. And for our athletes, we know that it's devastating for performance, not just physical performance in our muscles, but also our nervous nervous system and especially our brain. And so we've just got to recalibrate everything from the ground up. It's not going to be easy. But I really do think, you know, hearing that the government is taking charge and laying out new recommendations and reducing the amount of sugar we consume, banning sugar for um, everybody under two years of age, banning sugary beverages, that is. And then we look down to Mexico again, and there's a ban on sales of junk food for anybody under under the age of 18. If you don't have a parent with you, you can't buy junk food at a local convenience store. How about that? Is that too excessive? Again, I just don't think there's room for compromise here. And once we start this this big turnaround, think of like a big tanker ship turning in the ocean. They can't turn on a dime like a tournament ski boat. It's a slow, calculated turn. But once we start making this turn, which I think we are, and it's great news, Gary's saying that, you know, sugar consumption is down. Uh, The incidence of Alzheimer's might be on the decline, but we still have alarming trends when it comes to childhood and childhood obesity. And what do their lives look like? Look, this is the first generation of children who are going to have to deal with this amount of obesity as they enter adulthood. And that's going to be very concerning. And that's why I'm telling you right now, every single healthcare system on the planet is in jeopardy. We first thought it was going to be obesity and all the related diseases. And then we thought, boy, oh boy, it's going to be diabetes. Diabetes is going to single-handedly destroy every healthcare system on the planet. It's out of control. And the stress on the healthcare system is too, too much. But now, obesity and diabetes take a backseat to Alzheimer's and brain disease, especially now that it's been directly linked with long-term consumption or or exposure to high-sugar, high-glycemic diets. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Now's the time, ladies and gentlemen, once again, let's make that shift. The crush war on sugar rages on. Thank you for listening today. I have to thank Mr. Gary Tobbs for coming on. I can't wait to have him on again because we've just scratched the surface of his research and his knowledge. But boy, oh, boy, did he set the stage for us here on The Crush War on Sugar. Just a fantastic conversation. Go back and listen to it again. You can go to crushperformance.com and get the podcast. Share it with your friends, your family. Everybody you care about needs to hear these conversations. And I humbly say that. These conversations need to be heard. 
if we're truly going to make a difference in our health and our wellness. We're going to continue the Crush War on Sugar going into next week, a more of a performance twist with Crush Hall of Famer Dr. Andouise Allen. We're going to look at the performance side, once again, of sugar and carbohydrates in our diet. How does our body really respond to the food and energy we put in our bodies? And not only how does the body respond, but maybe even more importantly, how does the brain respond? Next week, we're talking the brain game with Dr. Andouise Allen. So I hope you guys can join us in. All right, that's a wrap for this week, everybody. Now get out there, go get better, stay safe. Please stay safe. And we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. We've talked a little bit about it, and we get this quite a bit. Players, coaches, you can certainly look at situations and those that want to take a side, which I never do because I know from experience that there's importance on both. Chris, is it more about players or is it more about coaches? And you're not going to like the answer because it's not a great talk show answer. It it is both, okay? And you can state your case. If you're in a courtroom, you can make your case one way or the other, and you can point out instances that will prove your point one way or the other. The court case and how you deal with it in in a court of law environment, it's a lot different than what I call proper analysis. And what's really important to understand is that when you are evaluating a situation, players, teams, coaches, schemes, you've got to look at the whole process. And one of the things that I always stressed was, look, I've seen really talented players that are not utilized, that are not developed properly, that are not schematically sound, or even if they are schematically sound, they're not from a technique, fundamental technique sound. I mean, you can have great technique. If you can't tackle on defense, you're in trouble. You can have great scheme. You can't protect. You can't block. You're in trouble. So I've seen really good talent struggle, and I've seen teams that may have less talent play really well. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.